Chris House just preached a sermon on worship, so I'm just going to do an altar call. Uh, we'll get out of here. Go eat. No, I'm just kidding. We're actually in a series on worship, uh, in a series looking at the book of Leviticus, but we'll get to that uh, in a minute. So hopefully you guys will take this series and it'll fuel your worship on May 11th, again, at our Newport News campus. Those nights are amazing. They're just packed service full of praise, worship, and prayer. So I love them. They're a great time. We got some of our own being baptized that night so we can go there not just to worship for ourselves, but to support our church family. But uh, tonight, he's not in here, but he just looked. Nathan Watney, sorry I made eye contact. It's his 40th birthday this weekend, so Monday, turn of the big four zero. There he is. You can give it up for him. So they've been at the church for a dozen years. We've been friends for probably over a decade now, and they pour into the church faithfully. Um, they serve the church in so many ways. They give in ways that you'll never see uh, because we're having meetings all the time just to plan, have vision. And Nate's one of those great people whose faith always has us dreaming big. So all the big dreams we have, they're blessed by him. And uh, just want to thank him. It's his birthday. But you can go now because the gift actually is for your parents. Um, sorry, that's kind of awkward how that worked. But uh <laughs> But, you know, he wouldn't be here without them, right? And uh, I was at Starbucks because I work in Starbucks. You raised, you raised some great kids. I don't know if you know, Amanda uh, Hiltz is also their daughter. So they have grandchildren here that are amazing, Avery, Aiden, right, Katie, Hannah. So they've got an amazing family. They've raised an amazing family. But they also, they sew into our, our church body. They lead a group called the Ben Theres. It's the 50-plus age group, what I would call the seasoned saints, right, that, uh, that have so much wisdom that can offer us, and they support each other. And I just want to bless them because I was at Starbucks. I work at Starbucks all the time, and there was a Ben There series of mugs. So I was like, this is made for y'all. So here's a mug and then a gift card as well. For Y'all can fight over it, or one of y'all can get the gift card, one of y'all get the mug. But we love them. If you've never pulled up a chair just to sit with them, have coffee, glean wisdom off of them, you're not doing life right. That's one of the blessings of the church is there's people in the church, all ages, backgrounds, experiences, all levels of wisdom where you can glean from people. So I know I've sat down with him before and, and, and just received so much from him. So if you haven't done that before, be like, hey, Dean, I'm going to go buy your coffee, right? He's got the gift card, but offer to buy him coffee. He'll give you the wisdom. But uh, it is true. Because I think all of us, we would say we want to hear from God. But uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis. You know, it's, that's always the go-to if you can't remember. But I'm pretty sure it was C.S. Lewis who said we always want to hear from God. But, but God might speak through a song. God might speak through a moment observing nature. God might speak through uh, uh, media. God might speak through another person in the church like a Dean Nowotny. That's one of the gifts of the church. And so often we might say, man, I wish. I was talking to somebody recently who was like, man, I wish I had a setup like Abraham. Where like God would just be right before me and speak to me. And I would just know this is God, this is his will. And, and yes, sometimes those, his will was hard, but at least I would know this is God, this is his directive, he spoke to me. But what's powerful is if you look at the story of Abraham, he heard from God a, a few times in his life, but he lived a very long life, right? Over 100 years. So there are periods in his life where he went years without hearing that voice of God. And he would probably look at us and say, you guys have the very word of God, right? You guys have scripture. God's word given to you every day. You can read at any moment of the day, God's word given to us. And, and when we envy those encounters, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. We want to hear from God. We want to encounter his presence, hear his voice. But we can't overlook the gift we have right here. God's word, which speaks to us every time we pick it up. And if we believe that this is God's word then obviously the books within it are important. And if I told you that there's a book in there with more direct speech and direct quotes from God than any other book in the Bible, you might be like, yeah, I should probably study that book. 
Or if I said that it's in the Old Testament, but the New Testament points to it over 140 times, you're probably like, yeah, it's probably important that I study this book. But then if I told you it's Leviticus, you might say, uh, hard pass, right? <laughs> We've talked, it's the killer of, of well-intentioned Bible reading plans because you open up Leviticus and you start getting into these sacrifices and the feasts and the rituals and the laws that don't make much sense in our context and our culture, but it's true that God speaks so much in Leviticus. And we would, I think, all confess that we believe 2 Timothy 3.16, which says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So if we truly believe all scripture is God-breathed, and Leviticus has more of these words directly quoted from God than any other book in the Bible, what does it tell us? What is it telling us? What does it want to inform us? How should it inform our worship, how we follow God? And I would tell you, just like the rest of the Bible, Context is key. I think so often in our day and age where podcasts are readily available. I love podcasts. They're like, they're like our version of commentaries where you can just hear somebody break down the word of God and what God spoke to them from it. I love podcasts. I love getting on Instagram and I don't just see the next plate of food somebody ate, but they, they got the nice calligraphy verse or, or Bible verses. But when we receive bits and pieces of scripture like this, a little bit here, a little bit there, we can sometimes have this copy and paste perspective of God's word. We can parrot this passage over here. We've memorized this verse over here, but we've never actually dug in cover to cover to get the context. And context with all things, it's the same with scripture. It's key. Otherwise, we can end up with all the quote-unquote feels or the warm fuzzies without the conviction. And we can get devotion without the doctrine. We can get uh, warmth without warnings, comfort without context. Again, context is key. So I say all that because Leviticus is not just some book dropped in the middle of the Bible. It's not a wisdom book like Proverbs, which is kind of unto itself, or a letter in the New Testament that's unto itself. It's, it's a part of history. The history of God's people that we see in the Old Testament, that God delivered and rescued from slavery in Egypt, and they delivered them out into the wilderness. And, and in Leviticus, it's part of this story where God had given them instructions at Sinai, including the Ten Commandments, including instructions for the tabernacle because he wanted to dwell and be in their presence. And that's where we find ourselves in Leviticus, as we open up the book of Leviticus. But as we've talked about, we see a problem immediately in the first pages of Leviticus, coming out of Exodus, because they build the tabernacle. It says Moses is obedient, and, and his people who built it were obedient to the last detail. And if you read Exodus, that's pretty amazing that they were obedient to the last detail. But when they, they build the tabernacle, it says the presence of God was so thick that Moses couldn't enter. So thick that Moses couldn't just walk in to God's presence. And a potential conflict shows itself here. How do an unholy people have an intimate, close relationship with a holy God? How do we go from relationship at a distance to intimate relationship with an infinitely holy God? And this is the problem that Leviticus tackles. When you begin Leviticus in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The Lord called to Moses from the tabernacle. So he called to Moses from a distance. But the promise of Leviticus was that an obedient Israel would experience a God who, quote, will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. All of Scripture is the story of God pursuing us, and Leviticus is no different. He wants to be with his people. And when you get to the end of Leviticus, in the beginning of the next book, Numbers, in Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses in the tabernacle. So we see Leviticus is successful. It bridges this gap. And, and we've looked at how, and we'll look more tonight, but maybe you're thinking, why? <laughs> why can't we just pause there or stop there? What's so key about Leviticus? And I would say two things that we've been going over these past two weeks. One, Leviticus informs our worship. 
And we had Chris House, our creative arts pastor, here last week, and we asked him, what's the book of the Bible you would open up to if you're thinking about worship? And he said, Psalms, right? Probably be my answer, too. We probably wouldn't say Leviticus, right? I just feel like I need worship, praise, and a book of the Bible. I'm going to go to Leviticus. But one theologian called Leviticus the one book of the Bible almost wholly dedicated to worship. Another said, right worship is a key concern of the regulations reported in Leviticus. We've said it before, we don't really see this because so often worship is like a genre of music on iTunes or Spotify. It's a 30-minute, 45-minute moment on a weekend where we worship and sing together. But we've talked about how Leviticus shows us that we worship God in three ways, through private devotion, to our public service, as Romans 12.1 helped us see and God's laws helped us see. And then tonight we're looking at corporate praise, coming together with God's people in relationship to worship God. So Leviticus informs our worship. But the second thing we see is the the same way we wouldn't settle into a long-distance relationship with the one we love. Right? That's never the the long-term goal is to have a long-distance relationship. At some point, you hope to bridge that gap, right, and be one as we're called to be one. But sometimes I think we we settle into distant relationships with God where it's kind of the norm where God feels distant. With the whole idea of God wanting to be involved in our every moment, every conversation, every interaction, it seems foreign. It's just kind of off over there, but it's not what God desires. And a derailed worship can lead to a long-distance relationship with God. This is what God said of some of his followers in Isaiah 29 that Jesus would quote later. He said, these people, they say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their hearts are at a distance. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote, routine. It's Isaiah 29, 13. So how does Leviticus inform us when our worship is derailed, when God feels distant? The first week we looked at sacrifices. And how in these sacrifices, God didn't want to be like the other gods of other nations where they were detached, they were distant. You never had any assurance of your standing with them. Through sacrifices we see instituted in Leviticus, he wants us to have assurance. He wants us to know that we have atonement. He wants us to know that we have access to his presence through these sacrifices. Then, of course, we talked about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and how he just kicks that door of access wide open, tore the veil. We have ultimate assurance under his blood. Then the second week, we talked about God's laws and highlighting the fact that our worship is not just supposed to be a vertical affair between me, myself, and I and God. It should affect our horizontal interactions with the world, how we live and how we love our neighbor. Some people, they'd say, well, well, God feels distant, but I'm in my Bible. God feels distant, but I'm praying. I'm doing all the things I think I should do. And I tell him, look, you look at Jesus and the interactions he had. He had over 100 interactions in the gospel. Ten happened in the temple, in the church building they had. The other 100 plus were outside those walls, ministering to the hurting, ministering to the broken. If you feel like God is distant, go where Jesus would have been, right? He'll meet you there as you minister to the broken and minister to those that need him. It's where Jesus was. Let's meet him there. But tonight I want to look at the, the feasts at the end of Leviticus. Specifically, it's in Leviticus 23 where they're, they're uh, outlined for us. And if you feel distant from God or your worship feels derailed or you think, you know, God feels at a distance, it teaches us two things that can help energize our worship and draw close to God. And two things we see in, in Leviticus through it, these the institution of these feasts or festivals, different translations call them dis- different things. You call them a rally, whatever you want to call it. But we see two things. First, a change of pace. It talks about the Sabbath rest. There's a change of pace, and that should inform our worship. The second is a change of place. 
Again, these festivals, these feasts, this coming together as a people to worship God. But first, let's talk about a change of pace. Because Leviticus 23, it reintroduces what God instituted in the, in the Sabbath rest. It says in Leviticus 23, verses 1 through 3, that the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. Then he says, There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. You're not to do any work wherever you live. It's a Sabbath to the Lord. So before we get into the activity and the energy of these assemblies, God reemphasizes rest. So I don't want to pass over this emphasis on rest. What does rest have to do with our worship, though? I think it has a lot more to do with our worship than we would think. Because often I think the reason we rest so little is because we worship ourselves so much. We rest so little because we worship ourselves too much. Maybe you think that's, that's overstepping, but Eugene Peterson, he's smarter than me, and he puts it in different words in a different way. But he says, I am busy because I'm vain. I want to appear important, significant. What better way than to be busy? The incredible hours, the crowded schedule, the heavy demands of my time are proof to myself and to all who will notice that I'm important. If I go to a doctor's office and find there's no one waiting, and I see through a half-open door the doctor reading a book, I wonder if he's any good. Such experiences affect me. I live in a society in which crowded schedules and harassed conditions are evidence of importance. So I develop a crowded schedule and harassed conditions. And when others notice, they acknowledge my significance and my vanity is fed. He uses that word vanity, but one of the definitions of vanity you'll find in the dictionary is self-worship. So you could take what he says there, I'm busy because I worship self. You know, Psalm chapter 10, verse 4 says, in his pride, the wicked man does not seek him, speaking of God. In all his thoughts, there's no room for God. My busyness is often rooted in pride, in vanity, in self-worship. And here, David would say in Psalms that it, it's wicked. But this push towards rest, it recalibrates us. It draws us back to worship of God rather than worshiping ourselves. And rest, it's not something that's just contained to the Mosaic Law at Mount Sinai that gets uh, canceled by the New Covenant. Some people would say it went the way of unclean foods and circumcision. But it was set in motion from day one. More specifically, chapter one of the Bible, this call to rest. We see that God rested, and we'll get to that in a second. But think for a moment about Adam. Right, he was created on the sixth day. What happened the day after? Rest. So from the, the beginning of Adam's life, the very first responsibility of Adam on earth was to rest in God's creation and God's provision. It was a day of rest. The lesson to be learned by man at the very beginning of the Bible and in creation is this, that the world has been created and it will survive without the help of man. It'll survive without me thinking I got to handle all my business, right? Perhaps it's for this reason, as I shared recently and I've shared before, the, the Jewish calendar days begin at sunset. It's not just the holidays. It's not just the festivals. Every day begin at sunset. So think about that. The sun sets. They don't have electricity. They don't have light bulbs. So naturally when the sun sets, you're going to wind down. And one of the first things you're going to do at the beginning of the day is rest. Just rest. You can rest in God's provision and sovereignty before you ever wake up to start doing your work. And you can wake up in that way with the weight of your world off your, off your shoulders. And I think it's a beautiful picture of the reality that we live in after Jesus and after the cross. Because Jesus died, right? First he came, then he died, then he rose, and I can find peace and provision in the fact 
that he died for me. He died for my family. He died for this church. He died for the whole world. So when I manage my schedule, I don't need to work myself to death, right? Jesus already died for my world, from the church to my family to myself. I don't have to kill myself trying to work for it. Look, being a workaholic is as much a sin as being lazy is a sin. Now, the consequences may look different, but the cost is just as high. But in our culture, we, we reward workaholics. We celebrate it. We glorify the grind, right? Think about people who would pride themselves. I never eat McDonald's. You won't catch me eating junk food or what else? To be healthy, they might say that they never would drink or touch a cigarette just because they respect their body, right? It's a temple. But these same people might brag about how much they work and how little sleep they get when science shows it's just as bad for your body, for your brain, for your heart, for, for your everything, psychologically to physically. If you're not resting, if you're not taking time to let your body pause and rest, then it can affect you. It's why we live in a burnout culture. Our culture that celebrates life at a breakneck pace is a, the same culture that is experiencing burnouts, people breaking left and right. Crazy stat I read this week that put this on my mind. Uh, per the World Health Organization, between now and 2030, right, so a little over a decade, 12 billion work days, which is 50 million years of work, will be lost due to stress and burnout. 50 million years of work total between now and 2030 will be lost because of stress, anxiety, and just general burnout. And hey, the church isn't immune. LifeWay did a, a survey where 20% of, of pastors that resign, it's due to burnout. But with all that in mind, consider this story from recent history. I guess it's not that recent, but it's recent compared to Leviticus. Um, from the Oregon Trail, and now that I said that, you're going to be totally distracted <laughs> thinking of that one time your whole family died of dysentery or you lost all your belongings trying to afford a river. But I'm talking about the actual Oregon Trail, not a story from my youth playing the video game, a story from the actual Oregon Trail, okay? There was a wagon train, which is just a group of wagons, not an actual train. If you didn't play the video game, it's a bunch of wagons in a line. They were going across the country, and uh, it stopped this group of wagons, it stopped once a week to, to practice the Sabbath. But as winter was getting closer, half the group was like, it's imperative that we get there soon. So we need to start traveling seven days a week and not take these days for rest. So there was a split. One group started to rest one day a week or kept resting one day a week to keep the Sabbath. The other started going seven days a week to strike ahead because they wanted to beat the winner. So which group do you think got to where they were going first? was the group that rested. It's counterintuitive, but you see that the horses, the people, could travel, travel faster on those six days than that other group could when they didn't rest at all and just kept going day after day after day after day. Eventually, they got so slow that they got overtaken. See, the word Sabbath, one of its meanings means to catch your breath in the original language. And we see here that catching your breath helps. Now, there's an author Mark Batterson, a phrase I'll never forget, he said, you can do the work of God at a pace that destroys the work of God in you. You can do the work that God wants you to do at a pace, if you're not resting, that can destroy the work that he wants to do in your life, in your heart, in your family, in your home, in your church. You know, often spiritually, the way to speed up growth spiritually is to slow down for rest and find room for God. 
But again, it's not strictly spiritual. There's physical benefits, mental benefits, health benefits, and advantages. It's almost like God knew what he was doing when he made the command, right? Science always catches up to God's commands. You might say, well, how can I give up a day of the week or, 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 or a portion of my week to rest? You don't know my job. I know Jesus is calling, right? We bit more important than yours, and he still found ways to rest. God, in his calling to create the universe, right, found a day to rest. But I also love when you begin to read the creation narrative that he pauses to reflect, look at what he created, contemplate it, and say, it's good. Like, there's, there's a benefit to resting, you know, regularly, but I, there's also a benefit to just pausing in the middle of your day, not rushing through one task to another on your to-do list, and just pausing and recognizing that God wants to be a part of each thing. Savor, savoring the fact that, man, everything you do can be sacred when God is a part of it. Just taking breaks between all the items on your to-do list or this task and this place you got to go to. Just pause for like a minute or two minutes of silence. Put a time on your phone and just sit. Connect with God and remember that he wants to be a part of everything you're doing. There's so much value in that. Blaise Pascal, who was a brilliant mind from the 17th century, he said, I have discovered that all the unhappiness of men arises from one single fact, that they can't stay quietly in their own chamber. Think about how much more distracted we are, what, three centuries later? That was the 17th century. He was saying, we, we can't sit still and just pause and just rest for a moment. And it breeds so much unhappiness. And how much more distracted are we today? But when you talk about rest and Sabbath rest, the first holy object in the history of the world, it actually wasn't an object. <laughs> it wasn't a location, but it was time. It was the seventh day of rest. It says God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy, which means set apart, different. There's a great book on the, just the idea of the Sabbath rest by Abraham Heschel, where he talks about how rest attaches us to the untouchable holiness in time. And he states that, he says, the Sabbaths are our great cathedrals, a shrine that neither the Romans nor the Germans were able to burn. This untouchable piece of time that becomes sacred when we offer it up to God. And for him, like, yes, there's benefits to rest, and you can be re-energized in rest. But for him, it's just, it's the pinnacle of our worship. Because again, it takes us off the throne where we think we're so important, we can't rest because I gotta, I gotta keep the world moving. But no, when you actually take time to pause and say, you know what, God's got this. Yes, God uses me, but God is in control. The whole world is, is his, and he gives me all things to steward. Can shift your perspective. It can actually become active worship. It doesn't just re-energize your worship or recalibrate your heart. It becomes worship when you can actively rest. So in John 4, we kind of hit on this passage last week. We see Jesus confirm that the worship that God ultimately seeks, it will transcend a physical place. It will transcend a physical location where the, the, the woman at the well asks him, do we have to worship over there? Can we worship over here? And what he says to her is the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. That's why we get to worship God here in Suffolk, right? We don't have to fly to the other side of the world. But we also can't live with a temple mentality where we only worship within four walls of a specific location because God is not caged in by four walls. God isn't tied up into a place. Our worship isn't tied to a place as much as it's tied to a source, right? Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit should flow into everything we do throughout every day of the week, every moment, every conversation. So for some people, though, the pendulum swings so far and they think, okay, I don't need to go to church. I can worship God wherever. But there's a great uh, encounter between 
there was a priest and somebody who came to him with this question, and he recalls the conversation. The person said, if God is everywhere, uh, what do I go to church for? To which the priest replied, the whole atmosphere is filled with water. But when you want to drink, you have to go to a fountain or a well. Just like the woman at the well who had to return there again and again to get her physical water, we should return to gathering in worship again and again as a church to rally as a people, God's people. You know, God's people, uh, just like we have this call to rest from the very beginning of Genesis, we have this call to gather from the very first formation of God's people, the Israelites. The, The word used in Hebrew for the Israelite people is kahal, which means gathering. From day one, when God formed his people, they've been defined by gathering right down to their name. And this speaks to the second way which these feasts show us how to worship and draw near to God if we feel distant. And that's not just a change in pace, but a change in place. These feasts, celebrations, and gatherings for corporate worship. One theologian commented that they they show us the unifying power of pilgrimage. The unifying power of pilgrimage. That there's a power in a change of place. Especially when that place is a place of gathering and unity and worship. And that's what can charge up our worship and recharge our worship. And you read through Leviticus 23, we see seven annual feasts. Special, consistent, corporate occasions for worshiping together. And what's powerful is a lot of these feasts were already celebrated under different names by by different people around the Israelites. But God takes these feasts that were tied to the harvest, and you might celebrate that feast depending on what your harvest was like that year. And he says, no, I don't want it to just commemorate seasons and harvests. I want it to commemorate times in history. Again, time to God is special, and he ties these festivals to things that he had done for the Israelites. Again, all these things point towards Jesus, but for him, he wanted these to point back to things that he had done for the Israelites. So for Israel... The historic events in time were more significant to their worship than whatever season they were coming out of. And that should speak to us tonight because your worship shouldn't be tied to whatever season you find yourself in, whether you think it's good or whether you think it's bad. Your your worship and whether you feel like worshiping, it shouldn't be tied to whatever circumstance you may find yourself in this week. Your worship should be tied to what Jesus Christ did. We don't just have what God did at the Red Sea and what he delivered the Israelites from. We have Jesus Christ, the cross, the grave. That should inform our worship regardless of what circumstance we're in. Whatever season we're coming out of or season you're going into, your worship can stay the same because what God did never changes. Jesus, his cross, the grave, still empty, right? Still reigns and rules. That doesn't change regardless of what circumstance or season you find yourself coming out of. God's telling his Israelites, I I want your worship to transcend whatever season you may be coming out of or going into. It's tied to what I've done for you. Our worship should be the same way. But you don't want to hear that because you're not saying amen to any of that. But here's a rundown of the festivals, right? The Israelites enjoyed 19 total days of, of national celebration and annual feasts when you add the days up for each of these festivals. The Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, which is also known as Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. What's powerful is there's seven up there. Two of them were solemn, but five of them were flat-out celebrations. And I love that about God. Like, there are moments to be serious and solemn. There's moments to be contemplative and have serious meditation and introspection and reflect on what Jesus did and be sorrowful for our sin. But, but the pendulum swings towards, hey, Let's have some joy, right? It's a fruit, of the, a fruit of the spirit. Let's celebrate what God has done. I love that there's five parties and two solemn 
moments. All of it's worship again. But I love that we see five of those. Again, the Passover happened in the spring. It was a celebration for God's people of the exodus from Egypt. The Feast of Weeks was an old festival uh, at the end of the wheat harvest. But it became for the Israelites a celebration of the day that the word of God was passed down from Sinai. The Feast of Tabernacles, which is also known as the Feast of Booths, and I think in some of the Bibles it translates it as such, it commemorated the dwellings of the Israelites as they traveled through the wilderness. And this last one was basically a call <laughs> to live in booths, like live in what they were living in in the wilderness. kind of reminds me of our men's retreat a few years ago before we went to Triple R Ranch. We posted up in I don't know how many tents. We <laughs> did our, our gatherings around a, a bonfire or over this hill at a, another place where you could plug in a worship set. It was it was rugged. It was raw. It was, it was a men's retreat. You know, women, they want to go to Devoted, which is awesome. I love Wave Conference. But for men, it's like, hey, let's go live in some tents, make a huge bonfire. I think Nate was like, I can jump that. And Pastor Fred was like, please don't. <laughs> it was really like half the, total rabbit trail, half the people there egging and on. Like, I want to see Nate fall into this bonfire. Nate, do it. Do it. And then Pastor Fred's like, please, I need you. You're an elder at the church. Please don't die. Again, that's a rabbit trail. I got to find out where I was even going. Oh, hey, the men's breakfast this morning. Right, there were, for us, it's a pilgrimage, right? We got to go to the Newport News campus. We gathered there to worship together with men that called this place home and that place home. And shout out to Mike Masters. He shared this morning. It was phenomenal. He repped us very well. So thank you, Mike, for what you shared this morning. But Paul Birch, he's been leading base camp on this side. And uh, first week of June, just so all the men know, he's going into uh, Wild at Heart by John Eldridge, my favorite book on manhood, growing up as a man, being a man. So that's the first Saturday in June, they're breaking into that book. And I say that because there's a quote in Wild at Heart, which ironically I was going to use tonight, and it's, it's on the wilderness. And it's on this idea of a, of a change in place and how it can affect our relationship with God. And John Eldridge says early on in that book, he says, if you look at the heroes of the biblical text, Moses doesn't encounter the living God at a shopping mall. He finds them or is found by him somewhere out in the deserts of Sinai, a long way from the comforts of Egypt. The same is true of Jacob, who has his wrestling match with God, not on the living room sofa, but in a wadi somewhere east of Mesopotamia. Where did the great prophet Elijah go to recover his strength? To the wild. As did John the Baptist and his cousin Jesus, who was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Each of these heroes of the biblical text, they didn't find God in their regular routine as much as they found him in the midst of a change of place. Some which was forced upon them, some which was called by God, like Jesus, into the wilderness. But that's where they found God. But one thing to take note of when we look at Leviticus, it's not just about a change in location. It's about worshiping together as a nation, coming together, corporate worship, as God's people gathered together. And there's an important element of these festivals that we can't miss, that they're not done alone. You don't just do it alone. You do it as a nation. Again, one of these commentaries said that this periodic worship at the sanctuary for powerful national religious events was designed to give the Israelites a recalibration of spirit, enabling them to maintain their connection with God and solidarity with each other. So our worship for God, it's, it's not meant to be done alone. Worship shouldn't be a solitary endeavor, but as it says here, worship should be done in solidarity as a people of God. Maybe not all the time, right? But we should regularly come together as Israelites were called to, to worship God together. There's a recalibration of our spirits and our worship that happens when we worship together. There's a power to worshiping together. It's why they're not in Leviticus, but there's 50 commands in the Bible to worship. There's 400 verses in the Bible that speak to worshiping God. Why? 
kind of like what we were talking about before, a call to rest or a call to fasting. The science always catches up to the reasons why. There was a study, a 2005 study, that found that group singing in a, in a, or singing in a group setting, say, natural scientifically proven antidepressant. That when you sing together in a group, it diminishes cortisol, which is layman's term for it lowers your stress, releases endorphins, it strengthens the immune system. <laughs> Worshiping together in a group is powerful. Again, it's almost like God knew what he was doing when he tells us to do it 50 times and talks about it 400 times in Scripture. And I love that in this study in 2005 where they, they found all these findings, this wasn't people with a voice like Whitney Houston or Chris Tomlin. This wasn't like Gina singing out to the congregation. These are like the voices of the people in the congregation that can barely find the key, right? Iffy voices. Doesn't have to be great voices. Just coming together and singing. Anthony's, they're laughing around Anthony because he can't. But he's an elder, so I can say that. You can have a voice like Anthony. We can have a room full of people with a voice like Anthony. Sing together and it would still reduce our stress. Some of you that are musicians, maybe Gina, right, like she knows keys. Like if she hears all, everybody singing off, that might stress her out. But in general, right, you come together with a bunch of people singing. It doesn't have to be beautiful, but there's, there's a reduction of stress that happens scientifically. And then, of course, the spiritual benefit. Again, it's almost like God knew what he was doing when he tells us to do it. It's why we do it every weekend here at church. God tells us to do it. It's a command, but he gives us all good things. One of those things is group singing. Maybe some of you don't sit next to Anthony because he can't sing. But whatever it is, man, to come together with Anthony's and people like him and sing together, it's a blessing. We need to see it as such. Because, there, again, there's a unifying power of pilgrimage when we gather to praise God together. It's been set in place since Leviticus, but it prepares us for eternity. In Leviticus 23, going back to that passage in verse 2, God says to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. And again, I did a lot of digging into the original language. You don't need to do that to have God speak to you through God's word, but I like to see what it means. The root of the word in Hebrew for assembly means rehearsal. So what are we rehearsing as we come together and sing? Well, for one, heaven. Right? We make heaven so churchy and honestly a little bit selfish because when we joke about heaven, at least Stephanie, I don't know about y'all, maybe we're just not as holy as y'all, as sanctified or whatever. When we joke about heaven, you're just like, oh, you're going to get a jewel in your crown for that, right? Because you just did something that you didn't want to do but it served somebody else. Or you got a mansion in heaven, right, talking to somebody else in the church. You can have a shack. You can have a mansion because you serve God so well. We start talking about these things that affect me, myself, and I, right, because we're corny and because we're selfish. <laughs> you look at heaven in the Bible, it always makes mention of how many people are there. Too many people to count. Like they're worshiping God in solidarity. It's not some solitary thing up in heaven where you get to hang out in your mansion and play with your crown, right? <laughs> no, we're called in heaven to praise God. It's going to be public. Introverts like me, you get a little shook thinking about that, right? <laughs> but we're going to be in corporate worship into eternity. Again, when you look at what we talked about worship last week, that's not like, oh, man, I got to sing all, all into eternity with Anthony. No. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> but this is the picture of heaven we get. And we get a, a taste of heaven, right? We talk about heaven now, heaven forever. Right? We're going to go to heaven to worship God and be in his presence, but God's presence wants to meet us here in this life. Right? We, we get to bring heaven to earth when we come together and worship together with people that are from different backgrounds, maybe vote differently, think differently, 
again, come from different backgrounds, have different life experiences, but we all come together to worship God. That's, that's a lot like heaven. We get to refer, rehearse for heaven in this life, and that's why corporate praise should be a priority. I know I'm preaching to the choir here because you're all here, right? But again, our worship isn't based on circumstance, whether we feel like we had a good week and I want to praise or not. No, no, no. Our, our worship is based on what Jesus Christ already did, right? When you come together and worship, sometimes that will make you feel good because you reflect on what Jesus did. Sometimes it doesn't, but guess what? It should still be a priority. Because our worship isn't based on circumstance. Our worship isn't based on whatever season we're in or we're going into or we're coming out of. It's based on what God has done for us the same way it was for the Israelites. But I like to think, if I could have the worship team come up, when we worship, again, we're not just thinking about singing together in a room. Corporate worship, which, again, is a blessing. It is a gift. But when we look at worship and we study worship, we realize it's supposed to encompass our entire life. All we do can be worship to God when we submit it to God. And yes, we were rehearsed for heaven when we come together in corporate worship, but if we worship God the right way, where it goes with us when we leave these four walls, then we also bring heaven to earth, which is what we're called to do as God's people, usher in his kingdom, bring a, a little piece of heaven to this earth. Yes, we come to taste and see of God's goodness. Yes, we come to remind ourselves of his grace. We come to be filled. But may we also remember the verse we hit on last week in John 7, 38, where Jesus said, anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. We don't want to just come to be filled and sing, fill me up, fill me up, fill me up, fill me up, and then live with all of that walled in during the week. We want to open it up and let it flow into where God's placed us, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our classrooms, whatever it is for us, those interactions, conversations. We're called to be secondary sources of living water because we spent the weekend singing Fill Me Up, and we reflected on what Jesus did, and it affects our countenance, our conversations, and what we do throughout the week. So I'd love to stand and worship. We got 10 minutes left on purpose so that we can practice what we preach practice what we just received and we're going to go into worship but God I pray for each one of us that we would find moments like this maybe it's 10 minutes maybe it's two minutes throughout our week to just pause just recognize the fact that you aren't distant sometimes I think we feel like you're distant because we just never pause to reflect on the fact that you're with us and you feel distant but really we're distracted God I just pray that we would have more and more moments like this tonight. Maybe there's not music. Maybe it's silence where we simply pause and reflect and savor the fact that there's something sacred in every moment, every, every day, every interaction because you're there with us. And God, I pray that that would also raise an awareness that you want to use us. God, we come to worship you in places like this, but we know we go back out out of those four walls because you want us to take the living water we've filled ourselves up with and serve others. Point them to you, Lord God. And I pray that you would remind us of that tonight. But God, we trust you. God, we, we thank you that our worship doesn't have to be based on circumstance or whether we feel we have clarity about our circumstance because we don't, we don't need clarity as much as we simply need a, a ruthless trust in you and who you are, what you've already done, and the fact your faithfulness informs not just what you've done, but what you're going to do, Lord God. Stir up faith in us. Honestly, clarity is the opposite of faith. God, give us faith that even when we're in 
a jacked up circumstance or a messed up season where it feels like there's clouds that have separated us from you, Lord God, that our worship, God, would remind us that you're right here with us, Lord. Remind us tonight that you're right here with us tonight as we sing. In your presence, I will dwell in the shelter of you the most high in you i will love and in your presence i will see that you are faithful the god who Trust you and I will trust you. Didn't I 
and festivals for the Israelites. They pointed back to what God had done. But you know, for us, we're on the other side of the cross. We're on the other side of the grave. We realize that these things also point forward to what Jesus Christ did. <laughs> what Jesus Christ did for us. Right? The Passover, the Passover lamb, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Right? The day of atonement, Jesus' blood would eternally atone for our sin. The, the, the offering of first grain at the beginning of the harvest, Jesus' one resurrection precedes the resurrection of, of many more to come. The harvest, we're called to be a part of people that come to know God and will one day be in heaven worshiping with us. And I just pray that that would take root again in our heart. And I don't know what season you're in now. I don't know what circumstance you're in now. Whether it's tough as nails or you feel like you're in between a rock and a hard place or you feel like you're in the belly of a whale like Jonah. I don't know what it is. Maybe you feel like you're on a mountaintop. The transfiguration in God's presence. Either way, we're called to praise God, worship God. Not just singing together, not just dependent on the seasons, but our unchanging God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Who's here, he's there, he's everywhere. Who holds the whole world in his hands and not just the whole world, but your life knows you by name, cares, and he cares enough that his grace doesn't just cleanse us, but it calls us and it commissions us, gives us purpose, gives us a calling as his church. So God, I pray that you would just continue to dial this in in our hearts, Lord God, what worship means, God, for our private devotion, for our public service, for our, our, our corporate praise, Lord God. That our corporate praise and coming together as a church body to worship, God, it would carry a priority, not because of anything we're walking through, but because of who you are and what you've done for us, Jesus. We thank you for your blood. We thank you for the cross. I pray that you would cover and seal every word that's been spoken tonight, God. Many of us, we've been spoken to by just a phrase, a verse, a thought, Lord God. I pray that you would cover that with your spirit. God, you'd water that this week. It will bear fruit in our lives and in our hearts. Holy Spirit, we do pray that you would fill us up, fill us up, fill us up so that we can be that secondary source of living water that flows from our heart to the hearts around us, Lord God. Help us to build your kingdom here in Suffolk as you called us to do as a church and as individuals, Lord God. Fill our hearts with worship and praise that doesn't end here but goes with us, Lord God. We pray this in the name of Jesus and everybody said, amen. So I don't know if you're big readers or you want homework, but as I was even just praying and, and thinking like Hebrews, we're going to follow up a, 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 a series on Leviticus, read Hebrews, because it points to how Jesus fulfilled all these things. But hey, that's free. If you need prayer, Anthony and Amanda are back there. I would love to pray for you up here because maybe you've never prayed. Jesus, I want your sacrifice to atone for my sins. I want you to be king and Lord over my life. We'd love to pray for you. Or if you're just walking through a rough season, rough circumstance, you want somebody to stay with you in prayer, I'd love to do it. They'd love to do it. Otherwise, get coffee, get your kids, interact with some folks, and we'll see you next week.
trials I got a smile on my face It's God, it's in its place And I'm not tripping no way I know that life moves so fast So my eyes are fixed on you, God I know these trials won't Silhouette 
Cross, sweet after bitter, hope after fears, home after wandering, praise after tears, sheaves after sowing, sun after rain, side after mystery, peace after pain, joy after sorrow, calm after blast, rest after weariness, sweet. Give me the hope for tomorrow. Give me the strength for today. You are the promise of peace on my pathway to faith. Give me the hope for tomorrow. Give me the strength for today. You are the promise of peace on my pathway to faith. Near after distant, gleam after.
Goodbye to my dreams when I said hello to your perfect love. 